Today on The Matt Wall Show, the Me Too movement has undergone a startling transition. They've gone from believe women to believe Joe Biden. Talk about shifting the goalposts. So what is this all about, and has it exposed the Me Too movement as a sham? Well, of course it has. It should have been obvious to people all along, but we'll talk about that. Also, five headlines, including Ben Shapiro getting himself into trouble with media matters for stating the obvious. That'll always get you into trouble with media matters when you state the obvious. And for our daily cancellation segment today, uh, something a little bit different. I hope you'll, you'll stick around to hear it because uh, you, you might find as a change of pace, you might find it pretty inspiring. So all of that is coming up. But first, a word from Ebb Sleep. Uh, it, you, know, you cannot emphasize enough how important it is for your health to get a good night's sleep. Uh, especially these days, you know, you're focused on your health, but really, no matter what's going on in the world, you want to be focused on your health. You got to get a good night's sleep. If you're having trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, it's time to try Ebb. Ebb Sleep is a wearable solution that fits over the forehead and then gently and precisely cools um, uh, cools the forehead to reduce those racing thoughts to allow people who are suffering from sleeplessness to drift more comfortably into a deeper, more restorative sleep. Ebb comfortably cools your forehead, helps quiet the racing mind. It promotes uh, the natural onset of sleep. So this is not like a sleeping pill or something that you take that's unnatural. It's going to make you groggy. This is all about the natural process. Ebb is clinically validated, and four out of five users report falling asleep faster and improving overall quality sleep. Um, what to expect while using Ebb Sleep? Ebb Sleep is designed to work with your natural sleep-wake rhythms, and uh, you know I've used it myself. And uh, someone who struggles to sleep many, many a night, I found it to be just a really natural, easy solution to uh, getting back to sleep. Ebb Sleep understands the uncertainty you may be experiencing at this time. Wants to help our listeners can save twenty five dollars off your order by using promo code Matt to save and continue to try Ebb risk free for sixty nights to confirm it's the solution you've been looking for at tryeb.com slash Matt. That's tryeb.com slash Matt. T-R-Y-E-B-B dot com slash Matt. Tryeb.com slash Matt and use promo code Matt. Order today with everything going on. Get the sleep you need and deserve. Okay, so the philosopher uh, Eric Hoffer famously observed that every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and then degenerates into a racket. Now, I'd be tempted to say that recent events mark the Me Too movement's transition into its racket stage, but that would imply, I think erroneously, that it was ever anything but a racket. If the Me Too movement was an actual movement, worried about an actual cause, then it would be rallying to the defense of Tara Reid, the woman who says she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden. Her story is about, about as credible and believable as a rape allegation made years after the fact could ever possibly be. Um, Women who come forward after a lengthy interval of time rarely have eyewitnesses to the event or videotape or anything that would make the matter conclusive. In fact, women who come forward after a short period of time or after no time at all are, are, rarely are going to have anything like that. And in, in fairness, uh, they can't be expected to have that sort of evidence given the nature of the crime alleged. Nevertheless, it is important to have evidence, though, um, even if it's not something as direct as, as that. And Tara Reid has a rather impressive catalog of circumstantial evidence to present. She has several people, friends, family, co-workers, acquaintances, neighbors, who can vouch that she told them about the alleged assault shortly after it allegedly happened. 
She has tape of a, of, a, of a woman who she says is her mother making a cryptic call to the Larry King show talking about a problem her daughter had with a prominent senator. She has a relatively consistent story that she can recount in detail. And then she has Joe Biden's documented history of inappropriately touching women, which we've all seen on video. And she has his conspicuous, up to this point, refusal to actually deny the allegation. None of this proves anything, but it does add up to a far more compelling case than the one made by Christine Ford, as I've outlined many times. It's also more compelling than a fair number of the Me Too cases in Hollywood uh, and elsewhere. You know, many of those boiled down to he said, she said, without much evidence, circumstantial or otherwise, to present. Tara Reid, by having any evidence at all, easily exceeds the meager standard of evidence that was enough to convict many accused men in the court of public opinion, at least, and even in the court of law in some cases. And yet the primary promoters and cheerleaders of the Me Too movement have nothing to say about Reid, or else uh, what they have to say is openly hostile and dismissive of her and to her. The media, with its courageous, truth-seeking journalists who uncritically reported many salacious rumors about accused men during the height of the Me Too hysteria, have suddenly lost interest in the topic of sexual assault. The New York Times essentially exonerated Biden, claiming that he has no established pattern of, of, uh, of sexual misconduct, even though his pattern of misconduct is not only established, but on film for all to see. And perhaps the biggest favor the media has done for Biden is to not ask him about the allegation at all. I think it was a Washington Examiner went back and looked, and uh, I believe it was something like he's done 19 interviews since these allegations uh, were made public. And in none of those interviews, we asked, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of questions, not one question to him about these allegations. Now, eventually that's going to change. Maybe it will change today uh, or this week. I mean, eventually he will be forced to address this. Certainly he'd be forced to address it in the general election because Trump's not going to let him get away with, with, uh, with not saying anything about it. Uh, Trump's going to have Tara Reid at the debates front row. You know, you know, he's going to do that. But he'll probably have to address it before then, eventually. Uh, eventually, the media will ask him a question. But th the, the damage is done. They have given him a month to figure out what his response is going to be and to game plan behind the scenes. Now, yes, if he has a game plan, he'll likely forget what the game plan was. But still, they, they've done as much of a favor as they could possibly do for him. And uh, so that's already done. Democrats in Congress who are all quite convinced by Christine Ford's allegations, despite the utter paucity of, of, of evidence and the fact that she couldn't even remember what happened, have come to, to Biden's defense. Senator Klobuchar says that she knows Biden, thinks he's a great guy. This has been a, a common theme. He's a great guy. He's a decent guy. Speaker Pelosi says she's satisfied with Biden's denial of the allegation, even though he has not actually denied the allegation. And she, she's satisfied, though. He hasn't even said anything about it, and he, she's satisfied with his response. His response is nothing, and she said, that's ah, good enough for me. Uh, I mean, basically, it's, uh, Biden, did you, did you do this? Here's Biden's response. And then Pelosi says, good enough. That's got, hey, thumbs up, great. She, uh, and she also praised his integrity and authenticity. Here, here she is talking about Biden last night uh, when she was being interviewed. Uh, here's, here's what she had to say. Well, I, I have great sympathy for any women 
who bring forth an allegation. I'm a big, strong supporter of the Me Too movement. I, I think it's been a great, made a great contribution uh, to our country. And, a, in, and I do um, uh, support Joe Biden. I'm satisfied uh, with how he has uh, responded. I know him. I was proud to endorse him the other day on Monday. Very proud to endorse him. Uh, and so I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Uh, I mean, he hasn't, to be clear, he hasn't addressed it. His campaign has addressed it, but he has not directly addressed it. Should he directly publicly address it? You know, it's a, a, a matter that he has to deal with. But I am impressed with the people who worked for him at the time saying they ever, absolutely never heard one uh, uh, iota of information about this. Nobody ever brought forth a, a claim or had anybody else tell them about such a claim. Uh, but again, we have a, um, a, an important election at hand, one that is, I think, one of the most important ones that we've had. We say that every election, but I think this one is the most crucial. And I, I supported him because he's a person of great values, integrity, authenticity, imagination, uh, and a connection uh, to the American people. He understands the kitchen table uh, issues of America's working families. His father lost his job when he was a boy. He knows what that feels like for a family. Integrity, authenticity, imagination. I don't know what that has to do with anything. He's being accused of rape, and your response is, look, the guy's got a great imagination. What? I, speaking of people losing their minds, uh, Nancy Pelosi is definitely in that in that category. I mean, she is 372 years old, so what do you expect? Then Stacey Abrams, who declared, I believe women during the Kavanaugh hearings, has amended that statement to, to I believe Joe Biden. And uh, here, here's what she had to say to CNN. I believe that women deserve to be heard, and I believe that they need to be listened to. But I also believe that those allegations have to be investigated by credible sources. The New York Times did a deep investigation and they found that the accusation was not credible. I believe Joe Biden. I believe that he is a person who has demonstrated that his love of family, his love of our community has been made perfectly clear through his work as a congressional leader and as an American leader. She's of course groveling to him uh, because she wants the vice president job. And if she doesn't get it, you're going to notice how quickly her tune changes. Okay, Joe Biden's going to go from a great guy, decent guy, hardworking guy, uh, so on and so forth, to a drooling racist. That's what's going to happen. If she doesn't get the job, he's going to not only be a rapist in her mind, but also a racist. Uh, so she, she, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll switch her tact pretty, pretty uh, quickly, just like Kamala Harris has, by the way. Remember, Kamala Harris was basically accusing Joe Biden of cozying up with uh, segregationists, and she was in tears about it at a debate, and now Biden's a great guy. Just wonderful. Love him so much. Now, joining the hypocrites parade are 10 supposed pro-woman groups, such as Planned Parenthood um, and the National Organization for Women and others. Now, these, of course, are not really pro-women groups, but this is how they tout themselves. And they've all refused to provide a comment on the Biden allegations. Um, the, the founder of the Me Too movement, Tarana Burke, has also declined to condemn Joe Biden or offer support to his alleged rape victim. 
in a lengthy and rather uh, circumspect Twitter thread by Tarana Burke, she you know went on a long thing about it, just which just just a really actually a really long way of saying that she has no moral courage whatsoever. And then she said that uh, Biden can quote demonstrate what it looks like to be both accountable and electable. Translation. Yeah, he might be a rapist, but I'm still voting for him. Alyssa Milano helped to popularize the movement and bring it to the forefront of the national conversation. But her first instinct was to leap to the defense of of decent man Joe Biden. And then she even said, and I thought this was great, talk about courage. She says that uh, she's going to prefer to remain silent about it. I think Joe Biden's a a nice guy. I'm just going to remain silent on this one. That was her response. Even the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, established uh, in, in, uh, in response to the Me Too movement, declined to take Reed's case. Now, all of this adds up to what perceptive people knew all along. The Me Too movement is and has always been a sham. It may have succeeded in bringing down a few bad men like Harvey Weinstein, but that was never the point. That was incidental. The point was to advance the ideological agenda of left-wing feminism. Um, believe women was very useful to that end, right? It's if if you want to advance left wing feminism, believe everything women say. Men are a bunch of rapists. You know, um, that's as far as left wing feminism goes. Most of the time, that's the talking point you want to go with. And that was a very, a very useful talking point, as long as the women who were supposed to be believing are accusing actors, moguls, athletes, Republicans, really anybody in that realm is fine. I mean, even if it's like Harvey Weinstein, who's a liberal Democrat, still, you know, they're, they're fine taking him down because he's not, he's not an elected Democrat. Um, he's an easy villain. And, uh, and uh, so they're fine with that. But as soon as a Democrat uh, is the target, then particularly one who's about to face Donald Trump in a presidential election, the slogans and standards of the Me Too movement are no longer useful. So they are summarily discarded and replaced by this credulous yammering about the unimpeachable decency of a man who has no compunction about grabbing a woman and sniffing her hair even as the cameras are rolling. This dramatic reversal, of course, doesn't surprise anybody who was alive and conscious during the Clinton years. Democrats back then valiantly defended a slimy creep who was accused of assaulting, raping, and harassing a whole series of women Um, two decades before they started shouting about believe all women, they were viciously descending upon and tearing apart any woman who dared speak about the violence and, and degradation she allegedly suffered at Bill Clinton's grubby hands. Now they're back to those old tricks again, so they've just reverted back to it. This is nothing unprecedented. After a brief period of Democrats and leftists pretending to give a damn about rape victims, they are now back to um, doubting and shaming alleged rape victims. So these are two-faced hypocrites, and the Me Too movement was just another political game they played and they've now abandoned it. And good riddance, as far as I'm concerned. Let's move on to headlines. So, media matters, as mentioned. Um, 
Well, they're huge fans of The Daily Wire. They watch all of our shows. They take notes. Hi, Media Matters. Thanks for being here. Uh, they're, they're frankly pretty obsessed with us. And I mean, it is, it is flattering, I have to admit, to have such dedicated fans. But usually when they target somebody here, whether it's me or Ben or, or, or Michael or Drew or anybody, um, I don't say anything about it or pay attention to it because it's par for the course. You know, they do it every day, so you can't, you can't respond to all of it. But this one, I have to say something about. Ben was trending on Twitter yesterday. Lots of outrage, lots of people upset after Media Matters pulled a quote from him saying that it is, uh, uh, suppo- it is, it is, it is, uh, you know, this, what, what Ben is, about, is, is saying in this clip that I'm about to play, they're claiming that this is outrageous and offensive and evil and all of that. But, well, here it is. Trying to balance the risks and rewards here is a difficult thing. The easiest thing you can do is say, all damages caused are caused by the pandemic. All of the good things that are happening, like you being alive, that is caused by me, right? It's sort of the Gretchen <laughs> Whitmer strategy in Michigan. And, right. and, that's, and, and that, that's a very easy thing to say. But in reality, you know, the, not only are there countervailing issues on the other side, such as the fact that you know, people are going to lose their jobs and their livelihoods and their dreams and quality of life actually matters, but none of these governors are going to keep things locked down forever. I mean, Andrew Cuomo, when he said, just save one life, five days later, he's saying we're going to open up parts of, of New York State. Okay, so which is it? I mean, obviously, that means that more people are going to be infected. So you were always going to make this public policy consideration. Nobody just wants to say the obvious truth, which is that we're all making actuarial deductions about what are the costs in terms of how many human lives, how many, how many years of life, because that is an actual issue in actuarial tables, right? If, if somebody who is 81 dies of COVID-19, that is not the same thing as somebody who is 30 dying of COVID-19. I mean, if this were killing children, everyone would be in for lockdown forever. That's the reality, right? If a bunch of five-year-olds were dying of COVID-19 and, and people were saying, get back to work, everybody would be like, nope, I'm not letting my five-year-old die. If grandma right. dies in a nursing home at age 81, that's tragic and it's terrible. Also, life expectancy in the United States is 80. So that, that is not the same thing. In, in moral terms, you want to save every life you can. At the same time, to pretend that it is of the same, it is of the same calculation, the age of the person, no public policy acts like that. Not a single public policy in American life acts like that. Okay, now here, here's the thing about that. Um, you agree with what Ben said right there. I agree. Everybody agrees. You might be saying, no, I don't agree. I'm outraged. No, you aren't. You're not outraged. You do agree. Okay? Yes, I'm telling you how you feel. That's what I'm doing. I know. I can read your mind. Yes. You agree with what Ben said there. There is nothing outrageous in, about it in your mind. You might pretend there is, but you know there isn't. All life is inherently valuable. All pro-lifers, this is our point. This is what we always say. And uh, that nothing has changed. And nothing Ben said there is inconsistent with the idea that all life is inherently valuable. We want to save all the lives that we possibly can. Of course, we cannot save all lives. In fact, we, we, ultimately, we cannot save any life. Ultimately, I mean, everybody dies. But uh, in the meantime, we want to do everything we can to preserve life. However, we recognize that not all deaths are equally as tragic. And yes, when someone states an obvious fact like that, it's very easy. It's one of those weird things we do where it's an obvious fact, and we all know it, 
Yet if you say it, it's sort of like forbidden to say. And if you say it, then everyone else who knows it's true can say, oh my gosh, how could you say that? How could you say that thing that I obviously know is true and I totally agree with you? But how could you say that? A five-year-old dying is, and this is, I, I'm, this is me talking right now, okay? I'm not going to speak for Ben. I mean, you heard what Ben had to say. So me riffing off of that. Here's, 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 here's the direction I take it. A five-year-old dying is more tragic than an 85-year-old dying. Okay? Um, and obviously, of course, that's how you feel. That's how I feel. That's how everybody feels. That's how every 85-year-old feels. Find me an 85-year-old who disagree. I mean, you absolutely think that the death of a child is more tragic than the death of an elderly person. That doesn't mean the death of the elderly person is not tragic. It doesn't mean that their life is worthless. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't even come close to meaning that. It doesn't imply it. Um, no, it's just to say that the death of a child moves us, stirs us, devastates us in a unique way. If you don't feel that way, you're a soulless robot. Now, clearly, if, if it's your own grandparent who's died, and you were to uh, compare your reaction to that, to your reaction to you know, reading in a newspaper that a five-year-old died who you don't know, now you're going to be very sad about that newspaper article, but you're going to be more personally affected by this person who you knew dying. But looked at, you know, generally, broadly speaking, the death of the five-year-old is much more tragic. And, I mean, if, if you would react the same way to me saying my grandma died as, as me saying my five-year-old child died, then, again, you're a soulless robot. It, but you wouldn't react that way. So why do people bother pretending they don't understand the point here? Even compare the, comp compare the funeral of an elderly person to that of a young person. Now, me, thank God, I've never had the occasion to attend the funeral of a very young child. Uh, that's a, a, a kind of tragedy that I've never been close enough to for that. Lots of people have. Um, I have been to the funeral of younger people, though, to, of, of a teenager. I've been to the funeral of younger adults. And I can tell you, and I've been to the funeral of elderly people, and um, I can tell you that the vibe and the mood is much different at a funeral for, for a younger person than it is for an elderly, elderly person. You know, in the latter case, there's a feeling of celebrating the person's life, um, of remembering a, a life well-lived and long-lived. There's even oftentimes a sense of relief that this person is no longer suffering. Um, and, of course, there's grief also. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of tears. But all of that's mixed together. In the former case, though, when it's a younger person, it is, at least in my experience, it is nothing but grief. It is nothing but unthinkable sadness and anger and despair. It's just not the same. It isn't. And you know it. We all know it. I mean, one of the reasons it's, it's not the same is, is pretty obvious. That a young, a young person, going back to the child example especially, a young person, Ben Shapiro mentions five-year-old, a five-year-old hasn't had a chance to live. They've only lived for five years. If someone is 85, they've, 
they're, they've lived a long, hopefully fruitful life. Uh, they're at the end of their lives, no matter what. Um, and doesn't make the death not tragic, but they've lived a long, fruitful life. And that is why at the funeral, there can also be, along with the grief, there can also be a, a, this, uh, this uplifting sense of celebration of this wonderful life that the person lived. You, you can't tell yourself that with a child when a child dies. Um, it, 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 it may have been a life well-lived, but it was very shortly lived. It was not a long life. And you get a sense of that they were robbed of something that they should have had. And that's the only point. And that's why, from a policy perspective, as Ben points out, you know, the policy is going to be different. We're going, it should be different when it comes to preserving very young life as opposed to on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I can tell you right now, listen, if this disease was uniquely, uh, primarily, almost exclusively targeting children, targeting five and six-year-olds, then my reaction to it would, would also, the policies that I would support would be, would be very different. In that case, personally, I would say shut down society. Shut it down. I mean, bring civilization to a grinding halt if we need to, to protect these children. That's what I would say. I think most people would say that. Because they're children. Because they haven't had a chance to live. And because we as a society, as adults, we have a unique responsibility to protect children and to preserve their lives. Doesn't mean we have no responsibility to anybody else. But we have a unique responsibility to our children. And, and, and if a civilization cannot protect its children, then what good is that civilization? In fact, this is what I say about our civilization, even apart from the coronavirus, uh, because of abortion. You know, we kill our children directly. So let's all just stop. Let's stop the games. I mean, let, let's at least get to a point where a person can state the obvious without everybody breaking down in tears and, and with this bad faith garbage. Number two, The Hill reports New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Wednesday ordered that all New York City subway cars be cleaned every night by Metropolitan Transportation Authority workers to ensure the safety of essential personnel during the coronavirus pandemic. Cuomo said any essential worker who shows up and gets on a train should know that the train was disinfected the night before. <laughs> Of course, you read that and your first reaction is, yeah, um, I would kind of like to know that even if there was no virus out there, I, 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 or at least there's always viruses out there, but even if there was no pandemic happening right now, I'd sort of like to think that the place was cleaned anyway. Uh, cleaning the subways is a good idea in general. You should probably be doing that every day, regardless of whether there's a global pandemic or not. And this really goes to show that we could have mitigated the disease just by doing a lot of pretty normal stuff, like cleaning, washing hands, not coughing on each other. There was a lot of normal stuff we could have done that doesn't involve shutting down society. This kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're in the, the bathroom, you go to, you go to a, a bathroom at a restaurant or some public establishment, especially a food, food establishment, and there's a sign in the bathroom, not just because of coronavirus, but you know, you always see these signs saying all employees must wash their hands before returning to work. And I, I guess that's supposed to be reassuring to us as the customer. But it always makes me think 
that the employees who work here need a reminder to wash their hands. Otherwise, they wouldn't. That's what it always makes me think. It makes me, it makes me a lot less comfortable. It's supposed to make me comfortable as a customer, but I think I, I, I would prefer to believe that the people working and handling my food wash their hands just reflexively and don't need to be reminded by a sign, but who knows. Number three, U.S. marriage rates have dropped to their lowest level on record, and um, this isn't just because getting married is banned right now. Uh, although that's that's also going to affect the record. But this actually goes back to 2018. The Daily Caller reports the marriage rate fell 6% in 2018 with 6.5 unions formed for every 1,000 people, according to the National Center for Health Statistics report. Um, millennials are in peak marriage years, according to Sally, Sally Curtin, a statistician. They're in peak marriage years, they're 20s and 30s, and it's still dropping. This is historic. Many couples are opting for cohabitation instead of marriage. According to the NCH's 2018 report, 17% of women and 15% of men, actually 16% about age 18 to 44, were cohabitating. Now, uh, for a while, the catastrophic social indicator that we were worried about was the divorce rate. But the divorce rate has been dropping in recent years. The new alarming indicator, and even more alarming in my opinion, is the lack of marriage at all. So, uh, you know, it's, it's actually the replacement of marriage. It's not just that people aren't getting married. It's that we're replacing it with something else. We're replacing it with temporary cohabitation arrangements. So the drop in divorce rate is fool's gold. You sometimes hear people citing this as a good thing, a positive thing. Oh, divorce rate's going down. It's, it's fool's gold. It's not an improvement, actually. It's, it's actually a, a, the next stage in the illness. This is not the illness going away or going into remission. This is the next stage. And it's an inevitable stage. It's not hard to see why this is happening. For one thing, it's, it's millennials, basically, who are giving up on marriage. And we have to remember that millennials grew up, we grew up as millennials, with parents who got divorced at the drop of a hat. Okay, the divorce rate when we were kids for our parents' generation was astronomical. And that's back when you used to hear that 50% of marriages end in divorce, which I think was always a misleading statistic. I'm not sure if that was ever actually totally true. But, but back in the, in the 80s and 90s especially, the divorce rate was very, very high. Um, so parents were getting divorced left and right. My parents didn't, but generally speaking, this is what was happening. Baby boomers loved divorce. They couldn't get enough of it. Millennials, their children, watched this, experienced it, uh, felt the devastation of having their parents divorce as kids, and have since decided that the whole thing is not worth the trouble. You know, it's not just that. You have to think about, about the um, context and the situation that some millennials were in. You know, their parents got divorced, depending on, and this also is a little bit geographic dependent, depending on where you lived in the country. But for a lot of people, your parents got divorced. And almost all of your friends' parents were divorced. So almost everybody you know, you know had divorced parents. It's not hard to see that those kids will grow up and become adults who say, I'm not doing that. Because that is the impression of marriage that they got. And this is why baby boomers need to be, in my opinion, taking a lot more responsibility than they currently take for the state of society. I mean, this is the culture and society that they, that they formed and are handing off to us. And a lot of what millennials are doing, it is in response to what they experienced as kids. That's not an excuse. I think cohabitating rather than getting married is a bad idea for many reasons. 
And so it's not an excuse, but you can kind of see where someone's coming from. If, 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 if to them, as a kid, marriage was nothing but a source of emotional heartache and betrayal and abandonment, that's what they're associating with marriage. All right, so I've gotten into trouble going on to number four here. I've gotten into trouble for criticizing these uh, stupid dancing nurse TikTok videos. I talked about that last week, and a lot of people were very upset at me for criticizing the, the hallowed sacred nurses and their dancing, their sacred tradition now of, of dancing. I, you, you mustn't criticize it. Well, I wonder, can I at least criticize this? Yeah, I don't know. Is that, can we all agree that one's a little, little inappropriate? Nurses dancing down the hallways of a hospital with a pretend corpse. (laughs) It's not even funny, but it's like, it's a laugh or cry situation. That's so much of what, and and we're told that the hospitals are being overwhelmed. We have, we had to shut down society to don't, so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. And now nurses are spending their time shooting increasingly, uh, increasingly ridiculous and outrageous and offensive dancing videos. Number five, and the memo went out from Governor Newsom yesterday in California that all state parks and beaches are going to close beginning on Friday. And the reason they're doing this is because of all those naughty people in California who were going to the beaches. And now they're saying, you're going to go to the beach, we're going to shut it down. So they, they haven't learned anything. When I, say they, when I say they haven't learned, I'm not talking about the people going to the beaches. I'm talking about the governors and politicians and, and, and political leaders. They haven't learned that these kinds of mes- methods are counterproductive, they don't work, and uh, they're also completely useless and stupid because being on a beach, that's a great place to be. It is a very healthy place to be. There is, there is probably not a lot of transmission going on of the virus at beaches. By the way, on, on that note, I was last time I made this point, well, I'm making this point every day, it seems like, about the being outside and going to the beach. It's a great, great place. Um, someone, I, I've heard this objection a few times, but somebody emailed me and said that, well, no, going to the beach is bad because remember those spring breakers in, in Florida who everybody's making a big deal about back in uh, early April. You know, they were at the beach and then they came home and the news said that some of them got the coronavirus. So clearly, that's why you can't go to the beach. And I, I hear that kind of argument and I think, this is another one of those, do you, do you really believe what you're saying right now? The spring breakers who spread or contracted the coronavirus, do you think they did it just suntanning at the beach? What do you think they're doing down there? Boogie boarding the whole time? Yeah, I'm not surprised that some diseases were shared at spring break. Not just the coronavirus. I'm sure there were some other ones too. But that's because there's a a lot of very close quarters, intimate contact at spring break. And I don't want to scandalize you, so I'm not going to say anything more. But um, I'm willing to bet that that is how. It's got nothing to do with the beach. The spring breakers could have been in North Dakota, okay, and it would have been the same. 
Not because they're at the beach, but because of what they're doing. Usually, sometimes on the beach, but but oftentimes later on at a hotel. Okay, that, that's all I'm going to say. All right, we're going to go on to your daily cancellation. Actually, it's not your daily cancellation. It's uh, something even better than that. But before we get there, uh, you know, right now, um, the Daily Wire, and we've been telling you about this deal. When you become a Daily Wire Insider Plus or All Access member, you will get not one but two of the highly coveted leftist tiers. Tumblers. This is this is the kind of thing people spend their whole lives pursuing and dreaming about and wanting. And you can get, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. You can get not one but two. Daily Wire members get many amazing benefits as well, as along with the magnificent uh, leftist tiers tumbler. You also get an ad-free website experience, access to all of our live broadcasts and show library, the full three hours of the Ben Shapiro show, access to the mailbag. And now exclusive election insight op-eds from Ben Shapiro. You want to check those out. Daily Wire members also get to ask us questions during backstage. And you get to participate in All Access Live, our brand new interactive programming feature. And uh, it is, you know, one of the Daily Wire hosts uh, hangs out each night, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, answering questions. Just really having a conversation, a back and forth. It's a lot of fun. The deal is going away soon. So that's two leftist tears tumblers, not just one, but two. When you become a Daily Wire Insider Plus or All Access member and get 10% off with coupon code Walsh, just head over to dailywire.com slash subscribe. That's dailywire.com slash subscribe, coupon code Walsh, and get the rarest of all beverage vessels times two. Okay, so this is normally where I do the daily cancellation, but I actually want to do something a little bit different today, more positive, uh, because there's a lot of negativity out there. And I don't know about you, but I, I, it's, it, I feel it's fairly suffocating uh, and overwhelming at times. So I'm going to cancel the daily cancellation just for today because I need to tell you about something else. And this is completely serious. And I, I, I'm sorry to get all serious at the end of the show, but you're going to want to hear this. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up just, just, uh, just thinking about it. Uh, Hillary Burton is an actress, I think. She was on One Tree Hill, which is a, a show, I think, or was. Anyway, she posted to Instagram this week that she is not dyeing her hair in solidarity with healthcare workers. I know. It, it's just, you can't wrap your head around that kind of courage. But these are the sacrifices that some people are making. And I think it's important for us to realize that and to honor it. So let me read this Instagram post. Here it is. It says, The silver lining is literally growing out of my skull. For all of our frontline and essential workers who are too busy to fuss with things like hair color, I grow mine out in solidarity with you. When I see it, I'm reminded of all you're doing to keep us safe. I'm reminded that you deserve to be taken care of. I'm reminded that any spare time I have shouldn't be spent on vanity, but rather on helping our heroes. I can make five masks in the time it would take me to dye my hair. It's a small, silly symbol, gray hair. Who cares, right? But I hope the nurse or the vet or the store clerk who is feeling tired and overwhelmed knows that it's a visible thing I can show and that it says, I'm with you. Hashtag stay home. Wow. How can I add to that? 
I can't. Um, I can only imagine the inspiration that the healthcare worker must feel when going on Instagram and seeing Hillary Burton's gray hair. And not just healthcare workers, but, but anyone who is suffering. Anyone who's, who's sacrificing. To be able to look and see this actress with a gray streak of hair in her, in, with, gray, with a gray streak of hair, it just, it just, all I can say is that it's the most courageous and awe-inspiring thing that I've ever seen in my life. Um, I look at this and I think, frankly, the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy were pansies in comparison to this. Uh, what Neil Armstrong achieved walking on the moon is but dust in comparison to Hillary Burton posting on Instagram about her hair. So thank you, Hillary. Thank you for everything. And I think I'll leave it there. It'll give us something to think about. Um, and I want you to, 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 to think, just as I am, what could you be doing uh, to send a message and to stand in solidarity like Hillary Burton? We'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Danny D'Amico, and our audio is mixed by Robin Fenderson. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. The FBI destroyed former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's life for political purposes, according to new documents that have been released years after the fact. And for some reason, the mainstream media that colluded with the bureaucrats to trash the general don't want to run the story. Yahoo News spreads lies straight to the president's face, which is unwise when you're dealing with Donald Trump. And even that story about the poor, confused lady who was convinced by Trump to feed her husband fish tank cleaner to stop the coronavirus turns out to be a little bit shady. Who could have guessed? All of which brings up an important political reality. All news is fake. Some of it's true, but all of it's fake. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.